0: I had a weird dream last night, Avdi, that you were marketing hair care products along with your Ruby toppings.
1: Huh. <laughs> interesting. A brilliant idea, actually. Pick up some confident code and while you're at it, this nice shampoo and conditioner package.
0: Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com ruby. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application's performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash new relic. This episode is sponsored by CodeClimate. Over 1,000 organizations trust Code Climate to help improve quality and security in their Ruby apps. Get 50% off your first three months for being a Rogues listener by starting a free trial this week. Go to RubyRogues.com/slash CodeClimate. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 119 of the Ruby Rogues Podcast. This week on our panel we have James Edward Gray.
1: I've stopped listening to the new Civil Wars album long enough to record this episode.
0: Abdi Grimm. Hello. David Brady. Josh Susser? I think David's off solving the halting problem. He'll be right back. (laughs) I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv, and we have a special guest this week, and that's Brian Hogan. Hello. Do you want to introduce yourself
2: really quickly, Brian? Sure. I'm Brian. I teach people how to make stuff on the web, and I make stuff on the web.
0: Awesome. Now, uh, you've written a few books. You wrote the Tmux book, if I remember. and. You review a lot of the Prag books. I see your name on a lot of them. Yeah.
1: The TMUX book is amazing. Oh, thank you. Yes. Love that book.
0: Awesome. So um, you, you're kind of an expert, at least more expert than me, on accessibility on the web. And so uh, we were hoping that you could explain to us the things that we have to do in order to make it more accessible, I guess, to <laughs> people who have trouble using it one way or the other
3: can we talk about can we get a, can we get a definition what is accessibility well there's there's
2: there's a lot of really bad definitions of accessibility and a lot of them focus on people with disabilities and so the the definition that i always use with people is ensuring that the website or web application that you're using is available to anyone who wants to interact with it and so that encompasses not just people who are blind, who can't, who have to use excessive technology like screen readers to read the page, but it also deals with people on mobile devices, or on slow connections, or uh, people on small screens, or um, people with motor impairments, and all kinds of things like that. And and so that's how I like to look at accessibility because on the one hand, it's it, I think it's a better definition because we have more much more uh, diverse people we can target, but also because it's a little bit easier sell. To people, I mean, and it's it's kind of sad that I have to say that, but it's a little bit easier to sell to people to say, well, no, you're not you're not just focusing on the on the the ten percent of your users or the five percent of your users that that are that are uh, low vision or blind or hearing impaired. You're focusing on a large percentage of people who may have uh, live in rural areas with bad network connections and things like that. And a lot of these things that we can do to to serve one audience serve all the audiences. And some yeah. of the things we hope to talk about today are are those kinds of things where a slight change that makes things better for someone who has a, a cognitive reading disorder, make things better for people who use a screener, and, and then of course it makes things better for everybody else too.
3: Yeah, I, I remember when the uh, ADA, the Americans with Disabilities Act, was first being implemented and there were a lot of complaints about it. And then fully able abled people suddenly started noticing that it was easier to transition from the street to the sidewalk because they had these curb cuts for you know people on wheelchairs to use. And yeah. Yeah, it just it makes things easier to use for everybody. What I want to
2: see as an industry, I mean, we, we have these guidelines like like Section 508, which, which govern uh, pretty specifically what organizations that receive federal funding have to do for their websites. But it would be much better as an industry if we didn't have to have that kind of involvement. We didn't have to have some laws get passed because we weren't taking care of ourselves. It would be much better if we could just say, hey... Let's make our stuff accessible so someone doesn't come up with guidelines. Because right now these these Section 508 guidelines that you have to follow if you receive federal funding from the US government, they're really out of date. And they're supposed to be renewed and they're supposed to be updated, but they keep getting stalled on it. And so these agencies are uh that, that have to comply, they're really, really have their hands tied in a lot of cases.
4: How Let's out say- of date are we talking? Is this like a teletype?
2: 1999?
4: Wow. Okay. Has anything changed
1: in computers since then?
2: Well, no. I mean, think about, think about, think about in terms of what we're doing, what we do on the web right now with a lot of JavaScript and things like that. And, yeah. um, you know, and think of how much the web has changed since 1999. Yeah. yeah and mobile. And mobile. Yeah. And, and yeah. you've got certain things that you're just not able to do. Now, thankfully, though, there, the, the, there was some forward thinking in a lot of those things. And so you can kind of, you can kind of bend the rules a little bit and you can, you can make your stuff comply but it's, it's still, there are certain things that would be much, much, uh, in, in the new proposal that are, are going to be much better for us. But, you know, if we could just kind of do this on our own, if we could, as you know, as a, as a developer community, uh, embrace accessibility, understand accessibility, understand the, the needs that people have, uh, we wouldn't have to find ourselves in a situation where we have to comply with grossly out-of-date legal requirements.
1: That's a really good point. I mean, like, even... People building uh, new, you know, places of business and stuff, right? They should make efforts to to make their shops, you know, not just meet the minimum requirements of accessibility, but to make them convenient and and pleasant, right, to be in, right? If you have uh, certain issues, and that's just a good idea anyway, right?
2: Yeah, but we're we're a lot of times we're a lot of times. Um Focused on delivering the product really quickly, um, you know, proving that we have a, a viable product, things like that. And so, a lot of people think that well, I don't have time to do accessibility. And and I've always argued, I've always argued because I've been doing this stuff since 1998 or so with accessibility. Uh, I, I've always argued that it actually isn't that difficult to make things accessible if you actually plan for it from the beginning. If you if you think about it, and it's like anything else, it's um, if you build a Rails application and uh, you just code and code and code and code and code and code, and all of a sudden you can't scale and you can't update things because you didn't think about how to design that from the beginning. Yes, it's going to be a much more costly effort for you. But if you know, know about those types of things, you know how to organize your code, you know how to abstract your code from the framework and all the kinds of things, Then then it can be a much smoother experience for you. And the same thing holds true for things like accessibility. If you understand that when you're creating your content, you need to plan for those types of things ahead of time, uh, it's going to be much easier. One of the, one of the first examples that I give people, you know, that this podcast has a, has a transcript and that's amazing. Um, that's, that's a wonderful thing to have because that's good for the people who are hearing impaired and that's good for people who are visually impaired. It's, it's good for, uh, people who just are on the subway and don't have headphones and they just want to re- read the transcript because they can read faster than hearing a bunch of people talk. It's good for a lot of different people. Uh, and if you're preparing a, you know, if you're, if you've done a podcast, then you got to, you know, you got to transcribe it yourself and that costs money and that takes some time, but it's, it's, it's worth the end results. But if you're preparing a video, like a screencast, or if you're doing some kind of a promotional video for your, your website, then you're preparing that content. You probably have a script and that makes the transcription process easier. And it's, it's amazing to me how many uh, times I go out to a site and I see nothing on the homepage other than a video and there's no transcript, there's no captions, there's no anything but I can tell that video was prepared ahead of time. Somebody could just put the script out there and make it available
3: for someone to read that.
1: Yeah. That's that's a good that's, point. So
3: Brian, aside from like the extra effort that it takes to make things accessible, is there a downside? I mean, is there, are there things that you have to compromise how you do them that, uh, that get in the way of doing accessibility?
2: You know, I think like maybe five years ago, that was kind of true. You know, it, five years ago it was don't use JavaScript have a fallback solution that does that will work without with JavaScript turned off. Because at the time, a a fair amount of people were browsing the web who were using screen readers. They were turning off JavaScript in their browsers intentionally because there were so many sites that didn't do it right. So a pop-up would happen. This actually happened on Twitter a couple years ago. And I actually have a video on my blog about this. I used a a voiceover on the Mac and and showed that I got lost using Twitter, using a screen reader. Uh, A a pop-up window would come up. And then the focus would be completely lost and the person would be stranded. They they wouldn't be able to figure out how to navigate away from that pop-up window. And so the, the the simple solution, if you're going to all these newspaper sites and other places that constantly have these pop-ups that, that get in the way of your content and make you lose focus, is just disable JavaScript entirely. Then of course you go to a page that doesn't that requires you to use JavaScript and now you can't interact with that. So the conventional wisdom was make sure you have a, a JavaScript solution that or a, a solution that works without JavaScript. So now you kind of fast forward and the screen readers have gotten a little bit better. The, the assistive technology has gotten a little bit better. And, and the number of people who disable JavaScript 100% is much lower than it was. I'm still of the mind that as, as a developer, especially working with things on Rails, because the default stack kind of handles testing controllers and things like that without JavaScript already, that's still kind of how I develop. I still develop things with regular get, with regular gets and posts and stuff like that. So I know, I know that all my underpinnings and stuff work. Uh, and then I'll go and build the JavaScript layer on top of that. So I still develop that way, but it isn't nearly as much extra effort as it may have been in the past. You certainly don't have to compromise on how things look. Uh, you certainly don't have to compromise on how things work, uh, especially with a lot of the advances that HTML ha- uh, HTML5 has with the, the ARIA landmark roles and, uh, the, uh, the live regions and a lot of the other attributes that you have even like even things like the the jquery widgets are starting to implement those uh additional aria roles that tell you what the state is it's an open state or it's a disabled state or it's a uh required form field those kinds of things and the screen readers can use those additional annotations to really help users out now not all of the screen readers are using these uh things or not they're not able to interpret those things but it is nice that we're getting to a point where we're even seeing frameworks uh, like ember and other frameworks actually Actively putting these ARIA roles into the code that uh, the boilerplates that they use and into the widgets that they create and things like that.
3: Okay, so there was a lot in that. In that, yeah, answer we'll, we'll, right we need there. to break it down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. C- can you talk about ARIA roles? I mean, I'm familiar with these, but that you know, probably not super familiar with them. So
2: you've got this. The specification is the the um, accessibility for rich internet uh, applications, and it's essentially a bunch of. Additional attributes you can add to HTML uh, documents, uh, HTML5 documents, and you can use them to, to kind of better describe your content. One of the nicest ones is a thing called ARIA Live, and you can use uh, the values that can be polite or assertive. And that basically says, I have a region on my web page that's going to update with AJAX, and I need to let the user know when that content has changed. So if you think about how a screen reader works, it's going to read the document, and and then you know if, if you're if you're cited you're going to see the content in the middle of the page changing you're going to see that content but how are you going to know if you don't see how are you going to know that that content has changed well the aria live role that you can add to an element like say a, if you have a list a uh, bunch of uh, list items you can add the aria live role to that aria or the uh, aria live attribute to that and it's aria live equals polite. And the screen reader will sort of monitor that region of the page. And it will alert the user of the screen reader that that region has changed. And that's a really, really powerful and effective thing. And you can do it using the polite. The reason we recommend using polite is so that it doesn't interrupt what the screen reader is already reading. The polite uh, value for that will say, okay, screen reader, um, this is new, but you can wait. Finish up what you're reading and then, uh, then alert the user that the content has changed. If you use uh, assertive, it will kind of uh, interact a little bit more quickly. And there used to be one that was like a, um, even more like I will stop everything that's going on and I will interrupt everything that's going on and I will tell the user that things have changed. So that's that's one. Then you have uh, aria landmark roles, which you can use to say, okay, this is the this is the heading of the page. This is the uh, the navigation of the page, and and those somewhat overlap with some of the HTML five tags that are out there, but they have uh, they there's a lot more of them and they can be used in screen readers to help mm-hmm. the user navigate around the document much more easily and then on top of that you you have some really nice uh things like you have aria uh you have the required uh, the uh so you have aria described by and you have aria required Those are things that can say, well, I have a table and I need to be able to kind of give a summary of the table. And you can say that the table and you can use ARIA described by and you can point that to a a paragraph tag that describes the table. So when assistive technology is looking at the table, you can give extra information to the person who's using the assistive technology about what that table is all about. So there's there's a, a ton of things to look at. That you can sprinkle throughout your application that can really improve things. You can use these aria roles to help with tabbed navigation, so that you can more easily say, uh, "Okay, this tab is open; these other tabs are closed." Uh, there's a lot of things like that that you can take advantage of.
3: I've seen some people try and do um, do like CSS styling with the roles uh, as attributes, and yeah. I, I mean, is, so is that? Yeah, we were talking earlier about oh, accessibility can make things easier for everyone. Mm-hmm. Do the, it, is there something that browsers are smart about with roles that it that make them useful for for styling for everybody? Sure. I mean, if
2: you use any, if you can, if your browser supports CSS uh, attribute selection, it would work because they're defined as attributes on the element, and so you just use them as if as if you'd used like oh, this is type email.
3: But there's nothing intrinsically special about them. No. In terms of how the styling works? No. Okay.
1: What about other measures? Like, I find myself, as my disease progresses and I'm slowing down, uh, I find that I value things like keyboard shortcuts way more than I used to. Yeah. Uh, because the simple action of going for a mouse and, and getting into the menus and, and getting where I wanted to go just... Taking to me too much time, and so I I just prefer to memorize the keystroke and trigger it that way. So, um, yeah, what other measures like that can be done?
2: Thankfully, a lot of the a lot of those kinds of things are much easier to do now with JavaScript libraries. But the the trick is to ensure that the uh, to ensure that the keyboard shortcuts you do create don't interfere with the keyboard shortcuts that a person on a screen reader might use too. There was you know for a while. You kind of advocated using the, the access key attribute in HTML and that, that just kind of doesn't really work well in practice. And so you typically rely on JavaScript solutions. And, and again, you know, that's great for a lot of people. A lot of people like keyboard shortcuts for things. A lot of people like to use those. And I think that they're especially, uh, especially handy for people who, uh, who have trouble using the mouse. I mean, we have people who can't hold, who can't hold their hands still or, Uh, They just don't. They only have one hand, or they have to manipulate the computer using other other methodologies, shortcuts, and other ways of interacting are are very handy for that. But we have to be very careful when we do these shortcuts because if we're relying on JavaScript events to fire things off, we have to make sure that we tie those into the right uh, event handlers. We don't want to tie them into the wrong event handler and, and have them not work. And and that's the one of the trickiest parts about accessibility is that. We can have automated unit tests, and we can have automated acceptance tests and all these wonderful, great JavaScript testing things. But a lot of the stuff with accessibility comes down to getting some people to use the site and actually running through the site with people, running through the application with people.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. It's not really something that's easily automated, I don't think you talked about how the benefit to everybody, you know, I, I have two roles. One is a disabled person where I find keyboard shortcuts helpful because I'm slow. And two, as a power user of many, you know, technical things where I find keyboard shortcuts helpful because I'm that power user, you know, so right. it does, it does help in that aspect too.
3: So you've talked about ARIA roles are there and we've talked about, Screen readers, are there. what are the kind of assistant, assistive technologies are there that people should be aware of? So one of the ones that a lot of people aren't really
2: aware of is for people who don't have the ability to use a mouse and a keyboard, there are other devices. For One one of the devices they can use is a wand that's attached to their head. And so they can use that and actually uh, use it in a touchscreen panel. And so they can tap the screen and tap the elements on the screen. And that's a lot like using your finger on a uh, tablet. Um, and, and we as developers can kind of uh, empathize with how difficult that must be to click on things that are maybe too close together, click on little mystery meat icons that just have the icon, don't have any words. The, the click target for those is much, much smaller.
1: The perfect um, example of you know. that, in my opinion, is like, uh, I think it's iOS 4, the music buttons, when you would like just bring them up via the the home button. They're terrible, and like all the time I would go to pause something, and I would skip ahead in the thing, and if it's like an audio book, you know, you yeah. jump like a massive amount of time, and, and getting back is horrible.
2: Right, so imagine doing that with a very large stylus attached to your forehead on a computer screen. Exactly. And, 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 and that's, that's a way that people interact with the computer. Another, another way is they use, a, there's a tube that you can use and you, you, you suck and blow into the tube and it actually moves the pointer around the screen. And that is another difficult way of moving the, moving the mouse. It, it, mm-hmm. it works, but it's difficult. And, and little things like ensuring there's enough space between links or ensuring that click targets are large enough at a, at a, at a significant distance. To do these types of things, those go a long way, and they go a long way for everybody. Because as you, as you get as you get older, your vision's going to deteriorate, and you're going to have a hard time using that mouse to find that cursor to click on certain elements on the page too. And you're going to wish that the elements were a little bit bigger for you to be able to yeah. click oh, on gee, them. Geez,
3: geez, it's not someday for some of us. The, yeah. <laughs> the, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I can't tell you how um, how sad I am that most web developers are in their twenties. <laughs> it's just the yeah you know, the the uh, the penchant for putting. White, like light gray text on a light gray background, mm-hmm. at, at like ten yeah. point font size. <laughs> it's that, like, yeah, no.
2: that, that's one of the that's one of the one of the contrast issues that I, one of the contrast issues that I wish would really go away in modern web design is the is this. Oh, I don't like your comment, so I'm going to display it with some CSS that lightens the text so much that it's barely readable. Right? Huh? Well, maybe I, I want to read that comment anyway.
1: I don't know about um how everybody else feels about it, but, like, I know that the tendency is to keep things, you know, where we can fit as much as we can in the interface, but whenever I go to a site that's kind of minimal and the font is blown up huge and everything, it kind of relaxes me. Like, I have less to worry about, you know, and, and <laughs> it's easier to take it in, and I just, I find that soothing. There's, there's
2: a lot of science behind that there's a lot of science uh, m- m- behind typography and, and and how that can inter- influence just like there's a lot of science behind the colors that you choose there's a lot of science behind that and one of the recommendations is that you should not have any text below 16 uh, 16 pixels and so 16px and of course that spike that sparks the big die uh, the big uh, argument of oh, should you use relative units or should you just use pixels and um, relative you know, you know, and, and I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to argue, I'm going to argue until, until ever that pixels is probably the better way to go from, because I'm a low, I'm a low vision user. And I, I think I can speak from a, a platform of a little bit more authority on that than someone who has perfect vision can. Uh But when I'm using assistive technology on my computer, I'm not increasing font sizes. I'm increasing the whole screen oh, uh, because the images you put on the, the images that you put on the page don't resize. And well, well, people, are in people are invariably putting text and information and graphs and all the kinds of things inside of the images. And so the learned behavior that I have for browsing the web is
3: I zoom the whole thing. Yeah, I, I do that, too. It's like the control zoom on the Mac is great for yeah. for yeah. that. I
2: zoom so the so whole you trigger thing. it
1: by accident
2: yeah well sure Um, but but that's the thing what 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 bugs me about this is that people get so militant about no we have to use relative units for everything because accessibility and i'm thinking that was true in 2003 huh but the browsers have changed their default behavior control plus on windows used to increase the font size now it increases the whole screen It it increases everything it's a full browser zoom interesting and it, it wasn't it isn't the case anymore. And if you look at, if you look at, there's actually a, a thread on the Twitter bootstrap forums about people requesting that, that bootstrap changes from M's to, or changes from pixels to M's for their measurements. And the, the bootstrap guys are like, eh, it causes more trouble than it's worth. Yeah, it's, it's yeah. And it does. It causes a lot more trouble than it's worth because you have to do, you have to do unnecessary math uh, to figure out how you're going to make sure that the things reflow around your images. I mean, this is, this is something that people are people are just going to argue about. It's, it's it's almost a holy war with this. Mm-hmm. But uh, you know, my my feeling on this is, if you got if you got images that you brought in from Photoshop and videos that you brought in that are all in pixels, size your text accordingly, make it readable, and focus your efforts on making other parts of the website accessible.
1: Hmm. That was a really good point you made uh, about um, charts and graphs and stuff having lots of text embedded in them. So mm-hmm. those particular elements not being readable so uh I, I think it's it's also good to think about you know the uh, the alternate forms of those data right
2: and in the, the thing that the thing that ends up happening is is uh, you know a lot of times the, the text re- the text changes but now i lose my reading position because things have jumped around the page now yeah right it happens a lot and that's that's something that you can mitigate but uh, again, it's sort of, what's the simplest path? What's your, what are your users doing? Now, if you have a, if you, if you can pull your users and figure out how they browse your site, that's great. Some people do set up default font sizes on their computer for their, de- for, the, for their browser style sheets. And that's, that's another issue that you have no control over as a developer. And so that's why I say always my advice is to focus on other areas of accessibility. If you have a sure. chart, if you have a chart and a graph on there, you need to provide that information in that chart or graph in some other format as well so that people can get that information that's important. It, if it's important okay. enough for you to put it on the page, it's important enough for you to make it available. Yeah.
3: yeah. So I, that's a great point. The the thing that um, that I think we just have to get to a point with some developers that they're not actively being hostile to people who want to bump up the font size. There's yeah. uh, like like, uh, yeah. like AT&T their their website for years was they d- they used tables for all of their positioning. And if you do the the right or the wrong CSS with tables, you can't zoom them. And mm-hmm. I, so right. I would hit Command Plus, Command Plus, and nothing would ever happen, and I couldn't actually read any of the text in the mm-hmm. on the AT and T webpage. It was, it's like sure. so. So so like, but are sure, there other
2: see, things like see, that? Now and see now that wouldn't really be a problem because that's going to do a whole page zoom, page zoom instead of a font change. Yeah, yeah. Wow. That's the thing. That's what I'm saying is that things have changed, and they've changed. They've changed, in my opinion, much for the better. Yes, you have to scroll sideways, but I can tell you, if you're a low-vision user, you're probably already doing that.
0: One other thing I just want to jump in here with is that uh, I was very not aware of a lot of this stuff until we had uh, the discussion on JavaScript Jabber about uh, accessibility on the front end. and uh, It it was really kind of funny because it was like, okay, well, I need to go make friends with people who use these assistive devices so that I can understand it. It harks back a little bit to the diversity discussions that we've had on this show where you don't really know what the problems are if you're in the, you know, majority of people who don't have those problems. Yeah. And, and so just understanding that, you know, talking to you, Brian, or we had a chat at the retreat with James about some of the things that he has to do to, um, you know, make things work for him. And, you know, just understanding that and talking to people and really getting it, it, yeah. it makes a huge difference because it's like, Oh, well, then I should put these kinds of features in and do these kinds of things because that's what their tool or their technique allows them to cope with it better.
2: And that's yeah. the whole idea behind sympathy versus empathy. You you want to have, you, you, you can write much better applications for, uh, you know, you can write much more accessible applications if you have empathy. Yes. I just started,
1: yes! I just started <laughs> cracking up when you said that because we had like a long. It's like a half-hour conversation. The Ruby Rogues on the definition of uh, sympathy versus empathy. So when you said that, I just started cracking up. It's a great. <laughs> yeah. That's really great. What about not,
3: not to distract from your point, yes. Yeah.
4: Hang but on a know. second. I'm tweeting something.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Brian settles the argument. Um, the, but, uh, no, that
4: That's actually a, a really good argument because, like you said, Pixels versus relative, and I'm like, relative! And the reason why is because I've been burned by websites that, like, blogs that actually have in the CSS uh, font size 10px important. Yeah. And I'm like, I can't resize it. I can't read this frickin' thing. Yeah. And, well, that was three years ago. And now you're saying, you know, Dave, if, if you weren't actually fully abled, you would be in touch with this community more, and you would know that this is no longer a problem. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, it's, it's,
2: it's weird because it all comes down to, it all comes down to the tooling that you use too. I mean, if you choose to use, you know, if you're choosing to use an IE6 browser that doesn't have that kind of zoom, or if, and, and in a lot of cases, it isn't even a matter of choice. You know, a lot of times these, especially for the low vision and, for low vision users, for example, my dad, my dad has the same eye condition that I have. Uh, and, uh, he was a Windows user for a long time, and I was a Windows user for a long time. Um, around the same time that I bought my Mac, uh, and discovered that, Wow, Macs have a beautiful full-screen Zoom built in. Uh, my dad had to go purchase a program for his Windows machine called ZoomText, which costs $400. Wow. Uh, nice. th- look, look at the price of a computer and the screen reading technology that it takes. You need a very, very powerful computer to run it, to run a screen reader full-time.
4: So Windows is uh, it's a very much expensive. Platform.
2: It's a very ex- it's very expensive for someone who's yeah. who's blind to have a computer that uses assistive technology. So they're not going to be running out and upgrading to the latest version of the stream reader, and they're not going to be upgrading their browser to the latest version because that might break something. So we do have those issues out there. Where we do have some segments of the audience who simply cannot afford to be on the latest and greatest technology.
4: But, but Windows is the better platform to profit from uh, disabled or less able people. <laughs>
0: if you, if you have, i have
2: i have i have no comment on that <laughs> because you have empathy for christmas i bought my dad a mac so yeah, nice yeah.
0: I, I was gonna say dave you almost sound like you're uh looking to uh, implement some profitable empathy on windows he, he
1: has been empathy. he has been job hunting
3: <laughs> yeah. hey, hey brian i have a question about about tools okay and So are there tools to help developers discover where they may be weak in terms of accessibility or to help them craft more accessible solutions? So like what I'm thinking of is there's the W3C validator that you pointed at your web page and it will tell you where you're in standards compliance. Is there something like that for doing ARIA or I mean, I know know that the the validator will tell you when you're missing like alt tags on your images. Okay. First of all, I got to stop you. Can we please say alt attributes?
2: at Their, yes. their, their yes. attributes. Yes. Um, okay. That's, I, so, I, that, that's just my brain on automatic. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's, it's it's just one of those things. Like, wait, yeah. wait. Their their attributes. There.
1: Yeah. I, yeah.
2: <laughs> yeah. There are a few interesting tools out there. Um, I'm going through my list of uh, notes here, but the first uh, line of defense, to be honest, actually is the validator, because if you have things that have to interpret your page, then they, then your page better be. Well formed, you know. Even if it's HTML, it still better be valid. You better make sure that things are closed appropriately and that things are, things are scoped appropriately. That's, That's sort of the first line of defense. I I can't tell you how many problems I've seen that solve because an invalid document then means that you're going to be writing lots more CSS rules that maybe you don't need because your browser is acting goofy. So you fix it in the CSS, and meanwhile the document is invalid. And the document, your you're, you're in a Rails application, for example, your template might be perfect. But then there's content that a user has injected into the page through the CMS that you've built or something. And all of a sudden the page is invalid and now you have weird CSS going on. And, you know, what do you do now? There are some tools from, uh, the, uh from WebAIM that you can use that you can look at. There's a nice checklist over at WebAIM that you can use. And that's the, the checklist that I follow when I'm looking at, and I'm doing an audit. I, I do uh, occasional accessibility audits for people. You know, and it's usually, hey, here's what you should fix. It's, one of the trickiest things about this whole topic is you don't want to come across as hostile to the developers either because that, they'll just immediately shut down. You, you want to say, well, here, hey, here's some improvements we could make. Here's some things that you could do differently. There are some automated tools. There's a great tool for uh, Mac and Windows called Color Oracle that you can run. Yeah. And it will just take this, take the screen that did you have currently in front of you. This is great for not just web apps, but for anything you're developing. Uh, and it will show you what the thing looks like through the various types of colorblindness. And it's just a little uh, menu bar item. And you just cl- click the colorblind type you want to test for, and it just changes the whole screen. And you can yeah, I, see the color. I, I the love Color, color Oracle.
3: Thing. I think that was yeah. one of my picks a couple months ago. The only nit that I have with it is that it's um, it's not persistent.
2: Yeah, I wish that it would stick around. Yeah. But you know, so I could I could fumble with things while it was running. Yeah, I wish that was the case. But you know, for for just a, a quick check of going, well, oh, that that looks horrible. Um, mm-hmm. It's it certainly is useful.
3: Yeah, has anyone done uh, like display profiles? It seems like you could just like, oh well, this is a too technical of a sideline. <laughs> yeah, line. Never mind.
2: I, I, I know you're going with this. Yeah. You probably could. So oh, okay, so uh, anything else in there? I'll, I'll see if I can't find it and actually add it in, because there's, there's, uh, the, the fact is that there are, there are lots of accessibility validators out there, but none of them are really that good. Because it's, it, again, it comes down to, well, what, what environment is the person who's using the thing running? I mean, you can say, well, yes, I have these things on my page and I've included them. Uh, but, you know, if the person's running JAWS on Windows, uh, using Internet Explorer, um, JAWS is a, a screen reader, a screen reading tool. If they're using that on Windows with, when they're Explorer, they're going to have a different experience than if they use that on um, Windows with Firefox. They're going to have a different experience if they're using a Voiceover on the Mac with Safari. Uh, they're going to have a different experience using Window Eyes or the the open source NVDA. They're going to have different experiences. Uh, it's actually it's actually pretty scary to see how like HTML five says you can use multiple H ones on a page, but it's actually pretty scary to see how the different uh, combinations of Internet Explorer and Firefox and the JAWS and windowized screen readers actually handle those. Some of them don't handle them very well at all. And so there's, I, I kind of take the automated approach with kind of a grain of salt. I think just the checklist is just better.
3: Okay, so so checklist, that's good. I was actually wondering about the whole design process. Is there something like accessibility-driven design? Are there particular skills that designers need to know to be able to produce accessible designs? It seems like if you get to the point where you're like, Okay, we've done everything. We've built it. Now we want to make it accessible. That that's not going to give you a really good accessible system.
2: Yeah, that's, that's kind of true. But the thing is that, that good designers that have been trained in color theory and typography aren't going to be making mistakes that are, uh, that cause accessibility issues because they've been doing this in print for quite a long time. They understand color contrast and things like that. The tricky issues with accessibility are from the, are not really from the design area. You know, yeah, it's 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 easy to just pick some random colors that are going to have bad contrast ratios. But the bigger issue comes down to, hey, when I click on this thing, um, it doesn't work. Uh, or my stream reader can't see these links you've generated with JavaScript. Or I can't tell if that tab is open or closed. Or that modal that you opened up, I can't get out of that now. Or I've lost my focus in my stream reader. Those are the kinds of real accessibility issues that are there. Or, oh, you loaded the entire page with JavaScript rather than using, even though it's a static page, but you didn't use any kind of methodology to alert my screen or the content has appeared.
1: Let's talk about that for a second, Brian. That's a big change in the web in recent years. You know, we're using JavaScript for more and more because, well, various reasons, right? Performance and, and uh, uh, you know, the nature of the web these days, mobile devices, etc. And, um, you know, how, how is that interacting with accessibility? I mean, I think at one point, you know, like you said, they, they tended to just turn it off. It seemed to almost be like the, the death knell of accessibility. But I think things have improved there, right?
2: It's improved somewhat, but you still have, well, it was a couple of years ago, Twitter said, all right, we're done with this whole JavaScript thing. We don't need a whole bunch of JavaScript to display 140 characters. We were wrong. We're going to switch back. And, I think that was the right thing to do because if you looked at the way it was working on certain mobile phones, half of the uh, the connection could be cut off and the JavaScript wouldn't show up uh, or it wouldn't finish loading. And then the content would never show up. You have a white page. It needs to be done. To me, that's an accessibility issue. I wanted to access the site and I couldn't read the content. So
3: you're a huge fan of Turbolinks.
2: I wouldn't go <laughs> that far. I wouldn't go that far. <laughs> But what I am a huge fan of is, I'm a, I'm a huge fan of using the tools for their in, uh, intended purpose. If you're going to show me content, that's what HTML is for. So uh, why introduce additional layers of complexity uh, just because you can? If so, you
1: have to introduce those layers of complexity, though, let's say you're in a, a spot where it actually does make sense. you know, Yeah. Uh, <laughs> then are there ways that... that And and I guess that's what you've been talking about using these arias and stuff. We can still try to give the browser hints that what's going on, like things like infinite scroll. I think almost everybody agrees that's a superior experience in many cases, you
3: know, Um, until you try to look at the page footer. Yeah.
2: Oh
1: yeah, good point. Well, 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 there's
2: that, there's issues there's issues with back buttons, there's issues with how do I, you know, how do I get back where if I go back and then go forward again how do I make sure I maintain how do I position rain, on that?
1: to it, a specific spot. Yeah, sure. Yeah, there,
2: there there's there's a lot of issues with that. Um but yeah, how do you how do you do that? You, yeah, you have to make good use of uh of the, the the aria live roles and you have to pray that your users are using assistive technology that can take advantage of those and they're using a, a proper browsing combination. And, that, and that's and that's a case, infinite scroll is a case where you, you, know, you might want to consider having an alternate way of browsing the content.
0: So one other thing related to this that I'm curious about is in a lot of cases, these different uh, frameworks will update, they'll push uh, the hash information into the URL. Do most of these assistive technologies let people know that that's changed? If you if because you're not actually going to a new page, you're just you know changing the hash value. The I forget what it's
2: called. You you're literally literally changing the changing the URL. Um, you're you're changing the local part of the URL. Yeah. It varies. I haven't tested all of them. I've seen uh a couple of uh, when I did some testing with Backbone, I saw that it it didn't seem to to tell me that things things had changed. But then again, it really didn't matter because it didn't impact the way that the screen screen reader was interacting with the page. Right. But it, it's it's definitely something that, you know, we need to check and we need to test and, and, and make sure that we're aware if there's going to be any issues there. It's a great point.
1: But URL changing example is kind of good. I, I like going back to your definition of what is accessibility. You know, there used to be those terrible AJAX sites that... You know, never changed the URL and, and was basically an entire application. And mm-hmm. luckily, luckily now that's going out of favor, you know, but accessibility aside, that was just horrible, right? For mm-hmm. a user in general, I could no longer link to anything, right? Well,
2: or, 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 or you hit the, you hit the, the backspace key on your keyboard to delete something and you realize, oh, you just went back in the browser. And now you've right. lost your place. I was exactly. working. I was working with an application just the other day that's a fairly new application, and I actually made a comment on Twitter about that. That it's like we're we're back in the Flash and ActionScript days where we're just going to break the back button because we can. We <laughs> don't know how to. We don't know how to do it effectively. We're just going to do it.
5: So nice. that's a that's a, a choice that you can that you potentially make on the back end. I'm curious are there any other back end choices or uh, particularly in the the Ruby and Rails for obvious reasons uh, arena uh, are there back end technologies or tools or gems or anything like that that developers should be aware of uh, that help with this stuff
2: I can't really think of anything that affects that, that from the accessibility side that affects the uh, affects users of the back end I mean aside from the obvious stuff like if you're doing internationalization make sure that you spell things right <laughs> uh, 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 well, you'd be surprised. That's funny and all, but if your screen reader is reading everything verbatim out of that, if you have a spelling error, it's going to be hard for someone to interpret that. Yeah. And you've got two classes I'd of say- people that are—you have two classes of users that are uh, impacted by that. Uh, uh, you have people who uh, who are using assistive technology to read things audibly to them, and then you have the class of people who have reading disabilities or dyslexia, other you know things like that that's yeah, yeah. going to trip them up too.
3: And, and there's other forms of cognitive impairment. i mean the yeah. the last the last big site I worked on was for people who had schizophrenia, and mm-hmm. the the usability challenges with people with that level of cognitive impairment were were really difficult to to deal with.' Mm-hmm. you know stuff stuff that that most people have just absorbed in how to use websites and web applications and can figure out if they haven't seen it before and but just fiddle around with it. That kind of stuff can be a huge challenge in you know a huge segment of the population. And and so the real the real
2: moral of the story is know your users. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, right. And when I talk about accessibility to more more uh, of a front end audience, I like to talk to talk about people versus users. Rather than using the phrase, this is a user of the system, or this is a a disabled user, it's this is a disabled person. Or this is a a, a person with a a hearing impairment or things like that. Because I think that the use of the word person is a little bit more, well, friendly than the use of the word user.
3: Don't
4: you call them
0: customer resources? Oh, Ah! oh, yes, of course, (laughs) right? Dollars, packets of dollars.
4: (laughs) What liabilities...
0: When you're so, talking about internationalization i I want to ask about um e s l um it seems like a lot of folks you know they want to consume especially in in our industry a lot of the content out on the internet is in English, and a lot of the people out there may not speak English natively um one thing that I know that's helped on a lot of these podcasts is that we put the transcripts up and uh-huh. then people can go and read them and and sometimes their reading comprehension is better than their audio comprehension yeah. are are there other things that we can do to help people who are trying to consume our websites or content when they are doing so in a language that's not their native one? Uh, I think it's the same
2: thing that you do with you. When you have people with uh, cognitive impairments and and dyslexia is that you try to shoot for a sixth grade reading level for your, for your main content. Uh, And and that's not always possible with technical documents and things like that. But um, if, if you can shoot for that sixth grade reading level for your marketing copy, if you can avoid using superfluous words because you think you want to, uh, that's that goes a long way.
3: Yeah, and be
1: uh, careful. I'm, lo- I'm looking
2: those... at marketing buzzwords here. I'm looking at the I'm looking at the word that I hate the most, which is "utilize." I'm looking at things like that, where you know, just you're using big words to
0: sound more important,
3: well, it, it, or or colorful words.
0: Mm-hmm. But I am more important.
1: <laughs> no, you're not. Yeah, special. it's your
0: website. <laughs> um,
1: what you were just saying there about technical content, I'm particularly sensitive to this issue because my wife and I have posted a couple of. Uh, foreign exchange students. And, you know, one of them came over speaking, you know, quite well, uh, being close to fluent. Uh, and they, but then, you know, occasionally we would just run into an area where she would basically fall off a cliff and it's because of hyper specialized language. So like a good example with a foreign exchange student is when you take them to a restaurant because menus have their own language that are just their own thing. They say everything in menu speak, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. and it's not something you learn as a natural part of uh, learning language until you set aside that special time for here's how menus are, yep. you know, and, and technical jargon is, is that yep. way of too, of
2: course. Yeah. And you yeah, you and you can't, you can't really deal with that, but your marketing page, your homepage, your blog, even, you know, things like that that are interacting with with a with general audience. We can all, all be a little more careful there.
0: Yeah, and it's not always formats, too, or, or vocabulary. And, and I can just uh, chime in on this a little bit. I was a missionary in Italy, and I can tell you, I can talk to anybody about religion in Italian. But if I try to talk to a programmer in Italian about programming, I don't have the vocabulary for it. I, I don't know how to, uh, how to communicate that.
1: Hmm. One of our students was a big math nut, and her uh, she would go to school and do terrible in math and it was that um, you know obviously we use different terminology but even more surprising like uh, we ha- uh, had different symbols like we didn't even use like um when you have a repeating decimal uh, in the United States, we tend to draw a line over uh, the decimal that's repeating. I guess that's not how they do it in Korea, where she was from. And so she didn't know that that meant it was a repeating decimal. But then once I, she came home one time and we were having a discussion about it, and I told her, ah, this is a repeating decimal. And, of course, we got stuck on that terminology. But once we got around it and she figured out what her concept for it was, she showed me how they draw that, and it's not the same, you know, even just that... I didn't expect that the symbols would vary. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. So Josh and or Brian, you, you've both talked about accessibility for, uh, people with cognitive, uh, impairment. I'd like to talk a little more about that as, as, as myself being somebody with a daily variable amount of attention deficit disorder, I have to manage my web experience fairly carefully or, or it will manage me. And Josh, you mentioned, mentioned schizophrenia. Can you touch? either of you touch on specific things that you have to do if you know that you're, you're, I mean, not just dumbing down to a sixth grade reading level, but I mean like, are there, are there tools that people with these disabilities can use? And I hate to use the word disability because I don't think of myself as as disabled, Mm -hmm. but I certainly do recognize that there are times when I open up a page with a bajillion things and I never read the main content because I'm in ADD land.
3: I can tell you what I was doing, you know, building, for people with schizophrenia and I'd that love was, to know that. that you know, there are there are a lot of things that trigger people uh, with schizophrenia and you want to avoid any sort of violent imagery or confrontational imagery. Uh, you oh. also Yeah. Also, you know, writing for like that sixth grade reading level was very good. And I, I actually found it, you know, like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, that trying to target that audience gave me a way of thinking about the content that goes on pages in a really clarifying way. And I think that, that what we put together was actually better for the site in general. So it wasn't like we had to compromise stuff, but it did require a lot more thinking to, to keep things simple. And, and, and you you know how they say that uh, most people can keep like five to seven things in their head at the same time. No, it's like, you know, you get, you get like one to three things on a page.
4: So, I, I know I have a track record of crass humor, but i I mean this sincerely and and genuinely it's almost like uh the epilepsy seizure warnings on video games then right it's it's you you avoid specific things like you don't flash the screen at somebody if if you know you're dealing with with epileptic users
0: uh yeah, I guess something like that mm-hmm. okay so. Uh, I, I want to change the topic a little bit here we've talked about visual impairment a lot on this episode and and I understand because you know we're talking about the web in particular and that's a very visual medium but are there other disabilities that uh, should be considered like hearing impairment or other disabilities that that we should talk about that we haven't yet
2: and we talked a little bit about about how transcripts help out uh, for for the hearing impaired but one of the things that uh, you also want to think about is if you're producing video, you know, normalize that audio. Make sure that you don't have these really quiet parts and these really loud parts. Uh and uh, if you're going to have background music, make sure that that background music is ducked out so that the the speaking part is is very very clear and it's easy for people to interpret. Uh but you know, the number one thing in there is is the transcripts and the captions and that's hard to do. Uh but it's it's worth it. It's very worth it.
1: One thing I've found that helps me is um, if you do have accessible features, accessibility features, things like keystrokes, document those. Like, put them on your web page, List them as a feature. Like, you can run this Twitter client without ever taking your hands off the keyboard or something like that because mm-hmm. when I'm looking for things now, that's of high importance to me, you know? And so I may not make it to the downloading your app part, you know, because I'll look at it and be like, eh, who knows? You know, and, and but if you tell me, you know, then that'll get me to look further, you know, and and help me know that this is a friendly environment for me. And and if you state something like that, then I know when I find that one thing I can't do by the keyboard and it's driving me crazy, I can probably drop you an email and you'll probably care, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, just saying those is helpful to me.
0: From now yeah. on, James, all of my apps will have Vim key bindings just for you.
1: <laughs> uh, I'm an Emacs user. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I love he's, I love thus <laughs> thus he's gonna make sure he has Vim keybindings for you.
4: <laughs> <laughs> I love that just just everybody who comes to me with the Vim is better than Emacs because of the mobility argument, that argument is now over. Your argument is invalid. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it depends on the d- disability. I think that's one of the points of this whole discussion is that yeah. you know, for some people, um certain accessibility in certain ways, it just makes a whole lot more sense and for yes. other people, it's different. I kind of want to talk about that too and I'm we t- we told you accessibility for web applications and I'm going to kind of bait and switch on you here. <laughs> um the the Ruby community has kind of evolved not only into that uh, the the web stuff, which is still, I think, a major component of what people are writing in Ruby. But you have things like Mac Ruby, uh, Ruby Coco, Ruby Motion. Um, you have people writing stuff for the command line and things like that. And we did a whole episode on non-rails and, and sort of non-web stuff. Mm-hmm. But if you're writing an app for the phone or for the desktop or a command line app, and I know I've given you three major major areas. How do you need to think about those differently from the web as far as accessibility goes?
2: I don't really think there's much of a difference, to be honest. You're still going to have your click targets be a certain size. You're still going to make sure that you spell things correctly. You're still going to make sure that your colors are, are appropriate. And one of the nice things about the iOS platform is that it has an amazing accessibility API that you can tap into very easily. Right. Um, so <laughs> you, you, you have a lot there.
1: That's a good uh, point there on the accessibility API on the iOS. What about just like a standard uh, Mac application? If you build just a, a normal Mac application, do users have less tools available to interact with that because it's not the standard web stuff?
2: Well, if it's, if it's a Mac app using the, using the, the Cocoa components, then voiceover should be able to interact with it just fine.
3: Cool. Huh. Oh, Oh, d- Ah, so sorry <laughs> so david your your question about what we did for the schizophrenia site so what yep. one of the one of, this that just reminded me one of the things that we did on a lot of the pages, especially pages that had a fair amount of instructional text on them, was that we had voiceovers and we actually recorded a human being reading the text on a lot of the pages so that we had you know very high quality voice narration of the text on the page rather than going through some sort of text to speech generation.
4: yeah, that's yeah. awesome, yeah. I I noticed going through Salt Lake Airport, uh, on the way to Lone Star RubyConf that, uh, they've replaced all of the human announcements with, of, uh, you know, Siri or the Google text voice thing. And as I, and, and she's harder to understand. And my first thought was, oh my gosh, anybody ESL traveling through this airport is, they, they might actually go from barely being able to understand to no longer being able to understand these announcements.
5: It's true that it mostly in most airports they have good announcers, but most other contexts, a uh, computerized voice would be an improvement. <laughs> so because like, because like, it standardizes. You know, well, like, you know, any any given bus, you know, or, or, or <laughs> subway where the announcement is. <laughs> always, yeah. Well and all the whenever,
2: all whenever the I pe- fly, yeah. Whenever I fly, I always have that always have that joke with whoever I'm flying with is that Every airport I've ever been to has always been flight number hurr, is boarding at gate hurr, hurr. And you, you <laughs> that's what you
4: don't need. And it's so
0: Well that in whichever city you were in, David, when you uh, experienced that, all those people are robots anyway.
4: The thing that threw me is that the, the pacing was off, so she kept saying this flight is now boarding at gate C as in
0: Charlie thirteen.
1: <laughs> and
0: Charlie thirteen? What? Right. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, there's a C in Charlie 15, too.
1: Yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh, well, this, this is uh, great. I mean, it's very informative. Is there, Brian, you've mentioned that that sometimes you've done accessibility, you know, assessments for people. Are there other people that do that? A group of people that do that? It seems like that should be a yeah. thing.
2: Yeah, there's tons of people that do it. There's you, you can probably go out on Twitter and just say, I need someone to do an accessibility audit on my site. And you find lots of people that will do it.
1: Seems like that's a really good thing because, I mean, then the only thing you have to be careful of is you're just getting that one particular viewpoint, you know? Yeah. But,
2: and, 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 uh, and the thing is, is that it, de- it depends on how much, how much time and, and, and money is going to be involved in that because, you know, part of a, an accessibility audit could just be that someone looks at your stuff, looks at your code, looks at your user interface, runs some tests on it. Uh, but the, the other part of that could be that they arrange a focus group for you. They arrange that they, they have some, uh, users with all kinds of different disabilities and different setups and stuff and they can have those people review the sites too so uh because one of the hardest things to do is is get a pool get a pool of users together to test something out and that's not including if you need people with screen readers or other kinds of assistive technology just getting a bunch of regular people together to test out your site and give you feedback on it's difficult enough so part of an accessibility review could be something like that
1: do you think there's things that uh frameworks like Rails and such should be doing more to help push accessibility. Is there more that they could do?
2: <laughs> yes. Uh, lots. And I, I've considered, uh, you know, once I get a little bit more free time here in a couple more weeks, I've considered doing some doing some initial patches, or sending some initial pull requests in on, like, the forms, being able to put more, or being able to put, like, the, the ARIA stuff into the form fields and things like that, um, and seeing if that wouldn't get pulled in. I don't know. Because one of my cow,
0: that would be so helpful because because well, one of the one of the things that I one of the things that
2: I've I've put a I've I've submitted patches a couple times for this and it's been rejected both times uh but I I really would like I'd like the delete links that are generated by scaffold to stop using JavaScript only to make those work because uh, I, I have I yeah. have encountered that as an accessibility problem in the past yeah that's that's a good and, point and and of course that ne- that will never that will never be changed I, I've been told that will never be changed so.
4: Why there will are they of change that? that. Is, are they just worried that that Google will
2: trawl their delete links again? I, I don't. I don't really know. I think the the solution that I w- the solution for that that I would propose is the solution that I use in a lot of my apps, which is that that goes to an eighth action in the controller, which is a delete confirm.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: It's a get link that goes to delete confirm, and then you have to click on a uh, on a a, a a a post, you know, a, po- a button that's an actual delete that does that. The other thing I've done is, uh, I've done uh, with, I'll just take the, I'll take it and I'll make it a button too. So that it isn't a link.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Then Google won't find it. And then
2: it won't matter. And then it will work without JavaScript. But a lot of times I find that I need the delete confirm because I'm deleting something. And then I can use that delete confirm page to actually bring up a bunch of information. Hey, deleting this will also delete this, this, this. And I can give the a user a nicer experience other than, rather than just a, are you sure?
5: Yeah. Yep. So, so you do have advice for, for back-end developers. I guess. That's right. That's
0: great.
2: still more of a front-end thing to me. I still think of that as a front-end thing, but I guess.
0: Well, calling into the back-end is it's sort of an API to the back-end. I don't know. Yeah, it's uh, a
1: great tip, though. Hey, Brian, if they uh, turn down your next uh, uh, Rails pull request, just come to us. We'll happily raise an angry lynch mob or something. <laughs> <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> well, we have a few people who uh, listen to us here or there that, yeah. But, but it is interesting that we can raise the issue and talk about it. Mm -hmm. Um, one other question. I
2: I like about open source. I mean, don't get me wrong. I
0: love the fact that
2: that, that these issues are so much easier to hash out and and on a a public forum, even like on a, even on a a pull request, for example, they can say, no, I'm not doing this. And uh, that's visible and that's, everyone can see that. I really like that.
0: I'm a little curious. Are these changes that need to fundamentally go into the framework or are these things that you could put into an engine or some other plugin that would, um, add them?
2: Well, i think i think like a i think like an accessible scaffold plugin would be easy to do yeah. um but you know that 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 goes against that goes not go against the heart and soul of what rails is don't use scaffolds but you know in 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 more seriousness i think if i was going to inject an application the the aria role for uh, application at the top of the page um you know that's something that you could do and that's something that you could do in the template that's something that you could do on your own that's something you could do with a helper but there's things like messing with the forms, like adding the additional ARIA uh um, ARIA disabled to a form field that's had the, had the disabled thing passed to it. Things like that. It'd be much easier if that was in the framework as opposed to having to get a whole new form builder or, or just, you know, plug into the form stuff with that. I mean yeah, things
1: you Thank can build you. your own form object, but yeah. also having it in the framework itself encourages people to do better. Right? That's
2: right. That that's one of the things that that's I love right. to see. Yeah. I, I love to see that with some of the stuff that I saw from Ember, where they were including roles, and 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 you know jQuery jQuery UI is including a lot of the role stuff, and it's just it's just there, and the developer doesn't have to think about it. And that's that's what I want to see with accessibility. I want to see the developer yeah. doesn't have to think about it, so then they don't argue against it. Yeah, I They don't physically I, I argue, I don't want to do it because it makes more work for me and it's hard and I have to do it later, etc.
0: I, I agree that it, ideally, yeah, we want it in the framework. I'm just saying if we can't get it into the framework, I mean, I would put that into my Rails apps if it yeah. made mm-hmm. it so I didn't have to think about it.
4: I would put in a gem that basically I could write a, a web link that said, you know, action, delete, confirm, true, with page, true, and it changes it from a JavaScript, confirm, to a delete page, confirm, you know, that yeah. kind of thing.
0: Yeah. So, one last question can Can you list a couple of websites that do really well with accessibility? I was going to ask you to list a couple that don't, but I don't want to. Anyway. No, we're not going to. But I got some that really do. I mean, awesome. mean
2: and any uh, do do really well with accessibility. Yeah. Um, well, until recently, Google Maps did. And they kind of made some changes that I don't quite understand what's going on, but it's not working nearly as well. And I had to say, Twitter is a lot better. Uh, that's uh, that's actually pretty nice now. The web web experience. It's not it's not perfect for by any means, but it's a lot better than it was. I don't get um, in my test. I'm not getting lost anymore with my screen reader. Mm-hmm. So, so those are the two that that really come to mind. And of course, you know, a lot of the blogs that I see where people are using, uh, you know, people are using WordPress and things like that. Those those tend to be pretty good. A lot of the can the can blogging software tends to be pretty good.
1: Awesome. That's a good, that's a good point. One advantage to kind of using a. Tried and true product is hopefully they've thought a little bit about accessibility. I
2: I have to say that one of the things that one of the accessibility concerns I had uh, is um, you know GitHub for the longest time they didn't have a they didn't have a a usable mobile view. They just didn't. If I want to just look at the readme on a mobile device, it was very hard to do that because of the way that they just left it as the default. Now they have a. Now they have a mobile view, and I, I kind of consider that for certain types of content. I consider that to be an accessibility issue as well. Yes, I can pinch and zoom on there, but it's getting to the point where well, I shouldn't have to anymore.
1: Yeah, great point.
3: Mm-hmm. I have a probably a last question for us here. I think we're we're getting short of time. But uh, are the, what are the good resources for people learning about accessibility? I mean, aside from this podcast, uh, what should I, people? What should we be reading?
2: I I think the I think the WebAIM website is really good. That's I I like that because it's a lot of a lot of nice articles. They have uh, they'll do surveys every once in a while. They just did a recent survey on uh, screen reader and low vision users, and and it talks about how they interact with the web. And uh, you know like are they zooming their text? Are they zooming the full screen? Or are they using JavaScript? Are they you know? And there's a lot of great information on that. So there's some guides there. Um, there's a couple of really great a couple of really great presentations. A, the Web podcast, W E B A X E, is is a pretty good podcast too, to kind of keep you up. And if you follow that Twitter account, you can you can get some pretty interesting, uh, pretty interesting insights too.
1: Not as good as our podcast, though, right, Brian? Of of course. <laughs> <laughs> just checking. Course. Just checking.
0: <laughs> All right. Oh, and uh, yes. Yeah, so, the, so the screen readers work exceptionally well with this audio file that you're listening to right now.
2: Yes, they do uh, another another one you can look at is uh, html5accessibility.com which talks about a lot of the uh, issues that are going on with html5 and the browser uh, the browser issues and interactivity with html5 awesome.
1: awesome. Thank you. Thank you, Brian.
0: Yeah, and and yeah. it's it's funny how many times we come back to empathy talking over the last several uh, mm-hmm. months but it's Can important. we be done with that? Seriously, guys. <laughs> <laughs>
3: do, do you have empathy fatigue
4: again? You're yes.
0: Right. <laughs> All right. Well, let's let's go ahead and do the picks. David, I'm going to make you start. Okay.
4: So I have uh, a secret, which is that I've been uh, participating in this podcast with an assistive device, uh, which is that I've been working with a client that uh, is dealing with accessibility. And, uh, I've been chatting with him, with him through this entire podcast about the various things. So I'm actually going to do something, uh, new, which is I'm going to, I'm going to pick something that I have not completely vetted yet myself. Uh, but, uh, so basically I'm, I'm going to be a proxy, uh, pick here. And that is, uh, a book called strategic IT accessibility by Jeff Klein. It takes on the approach of. At the, at the large, medium and large organization level, how do you enable accessibility rather than trying to go to a single developer and say, hey, make this, this accessible? So I, Brian, you're welcome to tell me that that's a bad pick if you're familiar with it. Um, uh, but, uh, the guy that I was talking to in the back channel, uh, highly recommends this book and says it's really a, a good, High level view of, of getting away from some of the technical stuff, but getting into the, you know, how you have to think about this at the entire uh, organizational level. So, uh, I wanted to have a relevant pick, uh, for that. As a second pick, uh, egghead.io is a website that has, uh, screencasts for AngularJS. I picked Angular, AngularJS a couple months ago and, uh, egghead.io has a whole bunch of very tiny screencasts on how to use angular and that's if you're interested in in angular and you don't understand so how some of the pieces work like how the in, how the dependency injection framework works and that stuff he'll start you off with the real basic stuff and work you up to a very advanced stuff and it's a it's a really good website so
0: that's my picks awesome josh what are your picks
3: mm. Well, I, I don't have any any software picks this week, but um, I have some reading picks from from my younger days. And uh, we, were, we were talking about naming earlier, and I, um, I I jokingly quipped that I blame Ursula K. Le Guin for my penchant for naming things, uh, but it's kind of true. I read this book of hers called A Wizard of Earthsea when I was young, and it's a it's a classic. I think, uh, Chuck, you and I have probably talked about that before in our discussions about f- good fantasy reading and, uh, there, yeah, so there's a whole trilogy that starts with a wizard of earth sea and it's one of those wonderful books to give to your, your teenage kid and, uh, you know, see how, I mean, how amazed they are at a new way to look at things. So, yeah, so that's a good book. And then, uh, along the same lines of names being important, there's that wonderful novella by Werner Vinge, true names. Which is, yeah, everyone kind of credits Neuromancer with being the beginning of the cyberpunk movement back in the 80s, but I think True Names is actually the first cyberpunk novel. They have, you know, people hacking in in virtual worlds and, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was definitely a good read. So I'm going to pick those two things. And, uh, maybe next week I'll have something a
0: little more technical for y'all. Done. All right. James, what are your picks?
1: Well, a cool thing happened on the internet uh, recently, and that's that Kathy Sierra is back. She disappeared off the internet for a while, much like Y did from our community due to people treating her poorly. Uh, And I'm not going to go into all the details, but the good thing is she's back. And um, Kathy Sierra, is, uh, uh, she's... A game programmer, and she built things you probably know, like the Head First uh, series of, of books and uh, things like that. So uh, she's really just great, uh, smart person. And she has a new blog that you should check out. The very first post on it is great. It's called Your App Makes Me Fat. And it's about how an application can drain a user's cognitive resources. Uh, so it's exactly about what we've been talking about for the last hour uh and it's very good um she has a new uh Twitter account uh she's serious Pony on twitter uh which is awesome because she alternates posting like these deep kind of technical ideas or startup ideas or things like that along with pictures of Icelandic ponies. And I've really enjoyed following that, because every now and then you just get this awesome picture of this pony running or rolling in the grass or or whatever, it's great. And I've already learned a ton uh, from following her on Twitter. I didn't know what the Zygarnik effect, if I'm saying that right, was. Uh, and she tweeted about it, and I ended up having to look it up, uh, and it's actually... Uh, quite fascinating. It's about how you can deal with procrastination and stuff like that. So, uh, great source of just uh, thought provoking uh, stuff is Kathy Sierra, and she's back. And I'm, and I'm grateful to DHH for making me aware of that.
0: Awesome, Avdi. What are your picks? I've got a
5: a whole queue of picks for once, uh, but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna bore you with all of them. I think I'll just I'll just uh, pop. About three of them off the queue and, and save the rest for another time. Um, first of all, it's possible, uh, somebody's already picked this, but there's a project called Ruby Warrior, uh, that I think Ryan Bates started, and it's kind of a, a game that you play with Ruby. And, uh, you base, you program a virtual warrior to m- make its way through a, a, a dungeon and, you know, and react intelligently to the dangers that it finds there. Uh, I had, played around with that a little bit in a pairing session I did once it was really it was really fun uh, and that was like the last that I knew of it but recently somebody took that and kind of ran with it and made a whole website where you do the same thing only it's totally interactive so they actually like show you the map that the this little warrior is moving through and you have the, the code right on the screen and you can live code and it'll evaluate the code and, and make the, the warrior do what you tell it to do. It's super cool. And I haven't actually had time to play with it much, but, uh, it looks like a ton of fun. I like the, the, the five minutes I did spend playing with it were super fun. Okay. Next up, there's this thing called, uh, Object Playground, the de- definitive guide to object oriented JavaScript. And it's a combination of a really well done video about how objects work in JavaScript uh with this super cool visualization technology where you can basically type some code in and it will visualize the whole live visualize the whole JavaScript prototype chain and a lot of associated information. Really neat to play with and very handy for grokking the sometimes abstruse JavaScript object oriented model. And I think I'll just do one more off my cue here. Uh, ran across this neat video from uh, one of Peter Cooper's mailings, it's a an, a demonstration of APL, uh, the programming la- language APL, which stands for a programming language, from back in 1975. And I suspect that this is one of the first screencasts ever made. In fact, it's less of a screencast than a typewriter cast because the top part of the screen is the uh, the demonstrator, the demonstrator's head, you know, and and him talking, and the the bottom part of the screen they used some like. Uh, primitive technology to to cut in a different camera, which is pointed at the teletype that he's working at. So you can watch him as he codes uh, on a teletype, uh, you know, and it's, it's printing cool. out. It's it's a, it's as as a professional screencaster. It was one of the coolest things that I've seen in a while, because it's <laughs> like this is like the first screencast or nearly the first. It was hilarious to watch that
3: and also like really impressive and humbling. But, yeah but 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 uh, but yeah I, I really chuckled when he like at some of his claims about how um, easy to use a lot
5: of that stuff was <laughs> yeah. Yeah. easy to remember symbols yeah yeah all right and that's enough for today
0: All right um, so I'm gonna do a couple of picks here. Um, this one's for David I don't know if you know about this but Uh-oh. there is going to be a conference in January in Salt Lake City Utah and it's called ngconf. And it is an Angular conference, and it's going to have the cool. Angular team there. Um, you can find it, like I said, at ng-conf.org. Um, cool. And I know some of the guys that are helping put it on, and it looks like it's going to be really awesome. So if you're interested in learning Angular, you want to uh, – I'm going to be there. I'm probably just going to be there as an attendee because I'm i am not super familiar with Angular. But uh, anyway, if you want to meet me, um, David might or might not be there. But, you know, a lot of other awesome uh, JavaScripters that I know are, are going to be there. So you can go to that and uh, and uh, learn more about Angular. If you're into Ember, we talked about Ember because it has the ARIA roles and things like that built in. Um, another local guy named Ryan Florence, he's pretty big in the Ember community. Um, he's put up ember101.com, and he's been doing uh, free screencasts on how to get into Ember. So if you want to learn Ember that is a terrific way to go and um i asked him about charging for it when he was on the javascript jabber show and he basically said uh the internet's giving given me a lot for free and i'm giving it back so it looks like this is going to be free forever and uh it, it's an awesome uh resource for that finally um i uh, rails ramp up starts today and by today i mean a week ago when you get this and uh i've been i found a new two place, weeks ago actually or two weeks ago well, whatever. I, I get confused because our schedule got confused, but yeah, two weeks ago. So anyway, you can probably still register, but that's not what this is about. Um, I found a new platform for putting up my videos that I'm really excited about, and it has worked really, really well. It's called Wistia. It's W-I-S-T-I-A dot com. And um, the issue that I had with Vimeo was that I felt like I was violating their terms of service by putting private videos up there. Um, they don't want you to do that for commercial, you know, lockdown site stuff, but Wistia is just, you know, you put it up there and then you can, um, embed it wherever you want, however you want. And they have a whole bunch of different options for embedding, um, calls to action, uh, sign up for my mailing list, all that stuff into the video. So you can kind of get that in there too. And so I'm probably going to be reworking a lot of my, uh, marketing videos to, to use Wistia and use those features. So, um, really uh, really, really like it. So those are my picks. Um, Brian, what are your picks?
2: Well, I've got a few. I The first one I'm going to do is I about a month ago, we released the second edition of the HTML5 and CSS3 book that I wrote a couple of years ago. So we have a second edition with lots of new material in there uh, and a little bit more on accessibility. I actually spent a little bit of time talking about how to put captions into the videos and how to do accessible tables and things like that. And sprinkling a little bit more of that throughout the book is uh, this time has been a little bit more... Uh, it's made it, I think, a better book. So we have that. The other one that I wanted to bring up is is actually another book uh, it's, that I have nothing to do with, but I actually think it's a it's a wonderful book. It's called Pro HTML Five Accessibility, um, and it's by Joshua O'Connor. And uh, it's it's a really nice tour because it does talk about some of the things that uh, that you can do, and it talks about some of the alternatives to things that you can do. And it's a it's a very handy book to have around if you're trying to do things on the web and you really want to focus on making them a little more accessible. So I do highly recommend that. Uh, the last pick I have is uh, for a game, and the game is called Beat Hazard. I am a huge fan of games that involve music, and Beat Hazard is sort of like a as a dual stick shooter. It's like a Geometry Wars type of game, uh, or if you go go way back, Robotron type of game. But it uses your music library to kind of build the songs and build the intensity of the weapons and things like that. And it's it's pretty cool-looking. It's a lot of fun to play with you know, music from your library rather than some hokey music that somebody came up with for the video game. Uh, but the other thing is it's available on almost every platform. It's available on the, the Xbox indie, indie Network. It's available on Steam. It's available on iOS. And it's available on Android. So you can get it anywhere. Uh, and it's just a blast to play.
0: Sounds like fun. All right. Well, I, I think we've... uh covered everything uh next next week is it next week because we're scheduling around stuff is next week the book club or is that in two yeah, weeks yes
1: it is next week
0: well we are recording the book club next week but
1: but it will be but it will be, be ne- it'll be next week from when they hear this episode as well okay that's what oh, I was is this
4: checking. one okay this one is okay we're we're airing lone star next and then this episode airs
1: after lone star If you cannot tell, we are all horribly confused by our new Ruby schedule. Are we (laughs) still a Ruby podcast?
3: (laughs) Apparently time has gone nonlinear on
1: us. (laughs) But yes, it will be next week. I'm one chapter from the end of the book. It is so much fun. I cannot wait for that conversation.
0: Awesome. All right. So uh, since we didn't say what it is, it's Understanding Computation by By Tom Tom Stewart. So go get it. Go read it. And uh, we're looking forward to having that discussion.
4: And go get it and go read it now because one week is barely enough time for you to scratch this book. It is heavy duty. That's yep. the second time I've warned you, children. Go read it. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, thanks it's for all
1: coming. all fun and games until somebody gets their eye poked out by a proc.
4: By, yep. by an infinite Turing machine. Yep. Yep.
0: All right. Well, thanks for coming, Brian. It was, it was a great discussion. And... Uh, I learned a lot and hopefully we can make an impact on the web and make it more accessible to people.
2: Thank you for having me. This has been fun.